Welcome to Obsessed with Design, a show about what makes designers tick. I'm your host, Josh Miles. Today on Obsessed with Design, I'm excited to welcome back startup studio founder, Christian Anderson. If you haven't listened to our first episode, I would recommend you go back and listen to that one first. It's episode number 55. So without further ado, please enjoy part two with Christian Anderson. Okay, guys, I am very excited to be back with Mr. Christian Anderson sitting here in the High Alpha Studios in the penthouse of Circle Tower, downtown Indianapolis. Christian, welcome back to Obsessed with Design. Thank you, Josh. Glad to be here, as always. Yeah, so um, last time when we talked, uh, your episode was actually wildly popular on the interwebs, um, outranking some quite famous designers, which was which was pretty awesome considering you're right here in our, our backyard or my attic, as it turns out. Mm. Um, so one of the things I was excited to talk to you about is last time we were kind of exploring what it was like as a designer turned entrepreneur turned VC turned um, startup studio. And, you know, you were kind of testing these hypotheses as it turned out. And you guys have had some pretty big successes just in the past year. So I'd mm. like to unpack some of those today and hear a little bit more about what you're up to. Yeah. Excellent. Excellent. Um, yeah. You know, as, as you noted, we talked, when did we talk a couple of years ago? I think it's maybe just a little over a year ago. Yeah, a little over a year ago, we, we were kind of in the throes of launching High Alpha, and uh, you know what what we had hoped to accomplish. Our thesis was, if you could kind of bolt a really strong design sensibility onto a uh, startup studio and marry that up with a venture fund, uh, our our thought was some really interesting things could happen. I mean, it, essentially, we signed up to launch. 10 net new um, high growth software companies in a pretty narrow window of time. And uh, here we are uh, right at about the three year anniversary mark of the launch of High Alpha. And we've, we've done that. We've launched nine net new companies and we've grandfathered in three companies that myself and some combination of my partners uh, had worked on historically, which brings the kind of total stable of High Alpha companies to about 12, which is really, as you noted, kind of remarkable. I mean, we said we were going to do it, but it's one thing to say you're going to do it. And it's another thing to look back and, and have actually done it. That's awesome. So out of those 12, were there any like real kind of start stops or fits in between? Like, I know you've had some that have been wildly successful and those are the ones that I tend to hear more about, but are there any of them that kind of didn't make it to the 12 or kind of didn't kind of That's make it question. past the cutting room floor? That's a good question. Yeah, I mean, well, and first of all, I appreciate you saying wildly successful. I will temper that. Uh, <laughs> and this is not false humility. I'll just temper it by saying, you know, it's still early innings. This is kind of a 10-year game. We were fortunate enough to have uh, an exit announced last week from really one of our youngest studio companies, one of the one of the three that we grandfathered in, a company called Octave, we announced uh, that it was, in fact, uh, acquired by a really terrific company called Conga. So that's kind of a full kind of cradle-to-cradle example of what, what it is we're trying to do, and we hope to repeat that many, many more times. Mm -hmm. But I frequently say, people say, how are things going? And I always say, check back with me in seven or eight years, and I'll let you know. <laughs> because this is a business where it's just very difficult 
um, it's like a very, very long race. And, you know, folks pull out in front and those look like your most promising bets. And then you snap the tape and a day later, uh, they've fallen behind and the, and the folks that were laggards are, are, are in first place. So it's, it's fascinating in, in terms of starts and stops. I mean, they, we've had, you know, this is a design podcast, so I'll try to keep it not to like startup wisdomy, but dude, it's, it is a, it's a pride swallowing siege to start these companies. They mm-hmm. are, you know, from day one, the odds of success are just not high, period. It doesn't matter how pedigreed your team or how much money you've raised or how big the idea is. It's just statistically speaking, they're not going to make it. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that we attempted to engineer into the model on day one was um, how do we vet these companies incredibly aggressively on the front end so that if they're going to kind of quote unquote fail, they do it in the very, very beginning. And so we've, we've built really a, a robust, interesting pipeline tool that we mm-hmm. use to assess new ideas, to validate those ideas. And we're constantly winnowing that list of concepts down. We're then running them through an accelerated but very intensive sprint process where we're talking to customers, attempting to pre-sell product. We're prototyping products. So we're basically trying to take the first year of a business where you're normally going to see most of your failure and compress that into a month. Wow. So, and I, and I think we've done that. So you're prototyping and getting in front of customers and all of that in that first month. Yeah. I mean, during our sprint week, which is just a week, we are oftentimes designing the whole business and beginning to stress test it. In many cases, you know, by day three of the sprint, we're in front of customers asking them to sign binding letters of intent to be customers. Because wow. at the end of the day, like the strongest signal for the kind of future success of the business is are people willing to swipe their credit card? Because let's face it, you and I have both been involved in launching businesses outside of the service industry. And when you go to your friends and customers and associates and, and, and whatever, your badminton friends and say, Hey, I'm thinking about doing X. Would you, what do you think? Is that a good idea? I mean, what do they say? They say, Oh, Josh, that's a terrific idea. You bet. I'd be a customer. So the <laughs> it's only the best thing I've ever heard. The only way to get to the truth is to pull out your square and ask for a credit card. Mm-hmm. And that's the moment of truth. Then you find <laughs> out like who's just blowing smoke up your caboose. So so yeah, we, we we've had lots of starts and stops in terms of businesses that have outright failed. By the time we've committed to starting the business, we our model allows us to de-risk those concepts much more aggressively than a traditional startup. So fortunately, to date, we have not had to put a company out of its misery that mm-hmm. we've started. But but mark my words, um, we're going to be doing this for years to come, and we will certainly, there'll be some misses, no question. Yeah. Well, tell me a little bit about, especially with you know Tinderbox, which became Octave, and then now it's kind of moving on to a future life. I'm curious with that in particular, or maybe it's not even so much about that example as it is, you know, kind of the intent of is is the goal to continue to grow these and hold all of them forever, or is or is that the model? Is it the grow it and find a buyer and kind of move along? Well, I mean, the goal is ultimately to get to some liquidity event. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the holy grail in our world is the IPO. And uh, those happen. Um, and when they do, they can be terrific. They are happening uh, 
kind of less and less mm-hmm. uh, frequently. It's it's pretty onerous. Back in the day, a much smaller company could go public. Mm-hmm. Um, the burden for being a public company, thanks to Sarbanes-Oxley, makes it much harder for small businesses or smaller businesses. So we're still going to see IPO as a route to liquidity. But the bottom line is the venture markets have changed so dramatically over the last 10 years that we basically have almost like a shadow public market and the private markets. There's so Mm. much cash that you have companies like Uber, which 20 years ago, that company could not have existed at that scale unless it was public. Like, period. Mm -hmm. Because there weren't $100 billion vision funds run out of Asia, you know, the way (laughs) there are today. You know, and... And you've got big stored venture funds like Sequoia raising $12, $15 billion funds. Those, those fund sizes were just unheard of yeah. 10 years ago, much less 20 or 30 years ago. And as a result, with all that money kind of sloshing around in the system, private companies don't have to go public. It used to be if you wanted to put a billion dollars on your balance sheet or half a billion dollars on your balance sheet, you had to go public. Today, you can raise billions and billions and billions of dollars from deep-pocketed private institutional investors and effectively delay the IPO indefinitely. So when we think about like the ultimate goal, um, I, I think it's important if, if you think about the ultimate goal from a financial perspective, it's to exit. And, and ultimately, that might be IPO. The more likely scenario is a, a strategic acquisition, a big company. You know, the Apples and Amazons, the Googles, the sales forces of the world have incredibly big war chests. And as you know, they're subject to the innovator's dilemma. So innovating becomes incredibly difficult for the $30 billion market cap technology company. So the way they innovate is through M&A. And through acquisition. But I, th- I think, Josh, it's also important to note that I work with a very missional group of people. So when we think about the goal, the goal really transcends, um, it transcends the pursuit of a liquidity event. We hope that if we do our job really well, the companies will be valuable, they'll be durable, somebody will want them. But we look at, we look at kind of impact. We look at how many folks are these companies employing? How is it transforming Indianapolis? I mean, clearly we're unapologetic about the fact that we're indie boosters mm-hmm. and we want to see something, the special stuff that's happening here, we want to continue to see that happen. And it's kind of vulgar to talk about money, but a big part of transforming um, any community is tied to resourcing. So we see kind of a big part of our mission as being kind of job creation and wealth creation to continue to forward, move, move along what's happening here in Indy. Yeah, I think it's amazing. And, you know, obviously a few members of your team have the exact target slash Salesforce um, pedigree. And I think a lot of that acquisition for, you know, probably a very small number of our listeners are familiar with exact target was bought by Salesforce a few years back here in Indianapolis after they went public. And, and I know that helped inject a lot of cash into the local economy and start other businesses and high alpha yeah, and being a big piece of that. Yeah. And not just, and not just cash. I mean, and this is just goes back, I guess, to why, like when I talk about like impact or what the goal is, you know, the financial health and success and growth of the company is absolutely unequivocally like critical. Like if the company is not growing and succeeding, nothing else is going to happen. Mm-hmm. Right. So put a check next to that. And let's just say that's a priority that's important to us. I think the more important stuff though, is around when you build big, durable, ambitious companies, that is contagious. 
And I talk about this all the time. People get tired of hearing me rattling off, but ambition is contagious. Mm-hmm. And world-class is just the best that you've ever been exposed to. Mm-hmm. Okay? So, you know, by, by building um, high-growth, interesting, durable businesses in any market, what you're doing, in addition to kind of creating jobs and injecting cash and driving the economy forward, is you're raising the collective ambition level of a city. When Exact Target sold a sales force for $2.5 billion at the time, that was the biggest SaaS acquisition ever in the world. Yeah. Um, it was also the biggest kind of tech exit in Indiana history. Now, we had had an IPO of Angie's List for over a billion dollars, an acquisition of a Primo for over half a billion dollars. And if you keep going back in time, all the way to kind of software artistry, mm-hmm. right? Um, every time one of those happened, we would all look at each other and go, wow, can you believe that? Someone paid a hundred million. We built a hundred million dollar <laughs> business. And, and today, not to be blasé about it, but... Um, if you sell your business for a hundred million dollars in Indianapolis today, they, you know, that's not, you know, that may be on the front page for the day, mm-hmm. um, but that's not the biggest news in town. And that is awesome. It's fantastic. Yeah, what it, it just really means is, is that the ambition levels changed, right? I mean, the new, if you, if you sell your next company for two and a half billion, people are going to be like, well, that gosh, exact target already did that, you know? And, <laughs> right. and you just see this, this is a trait for kind of high performing people Athletic teams, mm-hmm. cities, businesses is uh, quarterback contracts. Quarterback <laughs> contracts. You know, it's it's. You know, can we do better? Right? Mm-hmm. Can we stand on the shoulders of giants? And and so yeah. Again, check back with me in ten years, and I'll tell you if it was successful or not. But that's a big part of our mission: is to raise ambition levels. Well, let's look to the future a little bit. What what do you feel like is is next for you guys? In that you're sitting here with okay, we've got twelve of our ten seats filled. So, so what happens next for High Alpha? Sure. That's a good question. So for me, one of the things I'm interested in doing, we're, we're going to continue to do this. So uh, I think we've, we've signed up. This is, again, this is kind of missional for us. And I don't think any of us are bored uh, or, or, or ready to hit the links or buy a sailboat or any of that good stuff. So I think we've got a lot of work ahead um, for me personally, if I, if I could, with your permission, t- maybe talk about design a little bit. Yeah. We, I think we proved out a thesis that if you put design at the center of everything you were building, so not just the obvious stuff, but everything, if design was informing every decision, that that was going to be leverage, that that was going to help you build a deeper, wider moat, that that was going to help you go faster that that was going to help you avoid a lot of the kind of mistakes of hubris of knowing what your customer wants, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And your, your partners were all on board with that. And they were all on board with that. Yeah. They they were not classically trained designers, but I think all, frankly, all design thinkers and certainly folks that had seen firsthand the impact that investing heavily in design up front can have on accelerating your business. And, and I think we've done a good job of that. And I think if you, if you come look at our physical space, you can tell, it's intentional and thoughtful and well-designed. And I think if you look at the the businesses we've launched, their brands and their products, I think that, I, I think it's obvious as well. However, I think we're just kind of scratching the surface. So for moving forward, um, kind of the next incarnation of High Alpha, it's, it's really my mission to see how deeply and pervasively we can push this idea of design into everything. And we're already beginning to do it. We're really beginning to think about how does design impact 
hospitality, right? Mm -hmm. When we're uh, staging an event or hosting investors or prospects or entrepreneurs, we're beginning to think about how do we really intentionally design our recruiting processes, um, you know, which is at the core of our business, our ability to attract and retain absolutely, uh, and to retain talent. And I just, again, I think we've taken care of like some of, we've applied design to the obvious stuff, but we've just scratched the surface. 90% of the organization has not felt kind of the full benefit of having systematic, excellent, thoughtful design applied to it. And, and that is my, that's kind of like my mission for the next four or five years is to see how far we can push that before the host organism begins to reject, uh, <laughs> begins to reject it. I'm sure we could go real deep with this, but how do you inject design thinking into something like talent? Like where, where are some of the first places that you take that? Yeah. And, and well, yeah, I think, um, we could do a whole podcast on this because this is a topic that I'm super interested in. And, and the intersections of built spaces, kind of tacit culture, mm -hmm. branding, what they now call employer branding, which mm -hmm. is the you know, company's messaging and positioning to their team. Those things are all inextricably linked and they all power recruitment. I mean, at the end of the day, you know, if you want to if you want to attract and retain the most talented people and let's just assume for a minute that everyone buys off on the fact that if you have the best people you're going to figure it out. Yeah. I think that's true. I think most people agree mm -hmm. with that. If you're going to attract and retain the very best people, uh, every experience that those folks have with your organization, your brand, your people matter. That's the currency of recruiting, right? Yeah, absolutely. And you know, it starts with, in most cases, it most likely starts with an experience that they have possibly had with somebody who works for your company. So like, are you the best place to work in the city? Period. Yeah. And when we think about how do we, how do we become the best recruiters in America? How do we for sure become the best recruiters in this part of the country? We just have one kind of simple mandate, which is we want to be the best job in Indianapolis and we want to be the best job in Indiana and we want to be the best job in, in the Midwest and so on and so forth. And so what does it mean to be the best job? And it is not clearly, it is not about um, ping pong tables and kegerators and, you know, uh, Herman Miller furniture. I, I would argue that having beautiful stuff and evocative stuff and thoughtful ephemera around the mm -hmm. office, um, can kind of, uh, add to that and, and, and contribute to your culture. But the bottom line is that is not, it's not the most important thing. The most important thing is how do you care for and develop the people you work with period. So how do you design programs, experiences, spaces that allow your team to feel deeply cared for? And then how do you help those uh, same folks kind of progress do their career. And, and it's interesting, Josh, because this stuff changes. I mean, 20 years ago, that I would argue that maybe wasn't the most important thing because sure. the world worked differently, right? You would lock into a company, you would spend 10 to 20 years there. And so things like compensation or how quickly can I progress through the organization title-wise, right? Mm -hmm. um, or how many restricted stock units am I going to be granted every quarter? Those were the most important thing. Today, people are transient. As you know, you're going to have nine different jobs before you retire. 
we understand that the rise of the gig economy and the fact that you know half of the U.S. population is going to be a 1099 employee in the next five years, that fundamentally changes that social contract. So things, uh, uh, the things that become really important moving forward is how do you become a great place to be from? Mm-hmm. You know what I mean when I say yeah. that? Mm-hmm. There's for your for your listeners, you guys should check this out. I, I listened to this unbelievable podcast a couple of months ago where the the gal who ran HR for Netflix was interviewed. Mm. And I'm spacing out. I know your listeners know, so they can tweet it out. Sure. I can't remember who was interviewing her. Anyway, it was awesome. It was like it was like one of the best interviews I had ever heard. And she was talking about how early on at Netflix, her and Reed Hastings were talking about what do we want to be known for? Like what at the core, like, like what do we want to be famous for as an organization? And they came up with this idea that they wanted to be a great place to be from. Meaning, oh, you used to be at Google. Wow. Right? Oh, you mm-hmm. used to be at Netflix. Yeah. So, like, just having been there was a credential that was more powerful than an MBA from Harvard. Yeah. Right? That's awesome. And I think, like, it's important for employers to think about that as well. Like, how do you create a place that's a great place to be from where people are coached up on? Uh, integrity and excellence and hard work and grit and decisiveness and the ability to move fast and dream big. You know, those are things that, those are cultural things. And if you survive and if you thrive in those organizations, they become imprinted on your DNA and they become incredibly valuable to you and to whoever you go work with in the future. Yeah, because that's that's transferable, really. It's You're bringing tra- that with and you. And that's the main thing, right? So yeah. becoming a great, pl- becoming the best place to work basically means, um, that you're going to be able to impart, A, that you're caring for the people, and by caring for them, that you're able to impart into and on them certain traits that are of high value to the rest of the world, and that are, by their very nature, transferable. That is your new IRA. That's your new savings account, right? Or, you know, well, what's your 401k contribution, Josh? You know, (laughs) I mean, that's not what's going to carry people in the next, for the next generation, that's not security. Mm -hmm. You know, security is being highly desirable in the marketplace. Yeah. So how can you help your people become highly desirable? And I get like the catch 22 there is like, well, okay, hold on a second. So in the process of doing that, I'm actually creating people that are most likely going to leave. Right. Right. And yes. That's the answer. And guess what? If you've built the best job in the city, if you've become a great place to be from, there will be a long, long line of other people wanting to come work with you. And and just getting comfortable with that fact, um, I think is really important. Well, I think that's tough enough to pull off for, for one company, one organization, one business. And now you guys have that times 12 <laughs> to <laughs> yeah. kind of keep it moving. So it's kind of um, critical for you, especially. And and I know that you legitimately are a big cheerleader for the city of Indianapolis. Um, yeah. So, I mean, you guys kind of have your work cut out for you. So I know that we are queuing this up for a short conversation and maybe we'll do a follow-up chat that's just all around uh, talent here in the near future. We should do a part two fun. or part three is the case. Maybe exactly. So, but, but I can't leave you today without bringing you back to my favorite question, which, and, and I know that I know your personality. So I know you've got an answer for this, but Christian, what do you find that you are most obsessed with right now? All right, let's go there. This is going to get deep. All right. Okay. Love it. Love it. Like this has just happened to me over the last like few weeks. 
but I'm becoming obsessed. I'm obsessed with two things. Can I share both? Oh yeah. Okay. Please cool. do. So the first one is what I'm calling like uh, the replatforming of my life. Hmm. So I was with my wife last week in Deer Valley skiing and we had gotten to the bottom of a run and I, we were sitting there chatting, like trying to catch our breath because we're old people now. And I commented to her that I had not gotten any better at skiing in 10 years. Like I was the same skier today that I was in 2008. And if I'm honest, probably 1998. Okay. Mm -hmm. I just had gotten no better. I was good enough. Like I can kind of mugate my way down a black without heaping too much shame on myself. But it was frustrating to me that like I was not getting any better. And it prompted me to think about like the rest of my life. And I recognize that there are a lot of areas in my life that I have not gotten any better at in a long time. Like mm -hmm. I got good enough, maybe even like significantly better than average in some areas. And I was kind of, you know, and then life happens, right? And you right. wake up and you realize, man, I've not gotten any better at skiing in 10 years. Mm -hmm. um, I haven't got, so anyway, so I was convicted of this notion of, okay, I want to snap the tape and understand Am I getting better at being a dad? Mm. Okay. I'm not sure I am. Am I getting better at being a husband? If Brandy was here, <laughs> she would probably say, I don't know what she'd say, but uh, let's, let, <laughs> I, I, I'll tell you that I'm, I'm not sure that I'm getting like that every day I'm getting better at that. Mm -hmm. um, so fatherhood, being, being a good husband, um, being a good friend. Honestly, I'm a, I realized that I had become a stagnated friend for a decade. Yeah. Like, I am not a better friend to my best friends today than I was 10 years ago. And that's not a good thing. And I'm an ambitious person. I'm competitive. I like to get better. So I've really begun to think and actually make some moves, things that back in the past, like, I would have never done. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, like, more actively pursuing mentors and... Uh, accountability and encouragement and counseling, things that I just didn't historically do or didn't do very well or didn't do very frequently. And I'm calling it replatforming. And it's really kind of like starting over and saying, okay, I want to I come to all of this with a beginner's mind. I want to come to how I kind of think about and care for myself and my psychological well-being, my children, my wife, my partners, the people I work with, my friends. And I mean, this is all just like in the last few weeks. Yeah. Um, but, you know, we, when we think about in tech, when we think about how do we transform industries, the language we use is replatforming. So if you want to change commerce or journalism um, or customer success, it, it, you cannot go back to the 20 years of calcified technology stacks and software and processes and try to incrementally, you're just putting lipstick on a pig. Mm -hmm. The big transformational shifts happen when you replatform. You say, let's rethink everything. It's like the shift to the cloud, right? Mm -hmm. It's kind of hard to do that incrementally. At right. some point, you're like, we're going to unplug the base server in the basement <laughs> and we're going to go. And so thinking about that in my personal life. The other thing I've been thinking about, and I, it, it's, not an, it's not an original thought. I take zero credit for the concept, but I've just been thinking about its implications on me, is this notion of what, what's called redemptive entrepreneurship. And this idea of moving the conversation of entrepreneurship to a place where we talk about, aside from just creating jobs, like we talked about earlier, yeah, right. and aside from just creating wealth, 
what role can entrepreneurship entrepreneurship play in I don't even want to say like solving the world's problems because that sounds that's a, like a you know a messiah complex thing that far too many people in tech suffer from. But how can we do more good? Period. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I don't mean starting businesses necessarily whose mission is to dig wells in sub-Saharan Africa. You know, I, I'm talking about like the common good, like the immediate stuff. How can we do a better job of providing for our staff people and you know, I keep talking about this like caring for people thing, which by the way, is not something I claim to be good at. It's something I claim to be interested in and want to get good at. Mm-hmm. I feel so, like yeah. that's related to the replatforming. I think it is. Yeah, I think they're totally related, which is why I wanted to mention both. And I mean, you can like Google redemptive entrepreneurship and there's lots of people kind of thinking about it and talking about it. Um, this replatforming of, of my life. I'm not sure if Googling that will, will generate <laughs> results or not, but maybe you know, after this show, it will. <laughs> yeah. Check, check back with me in a few months and I'll let you know how it's going, but I'm, I'm excited about it. I mean, part of it, it's scary. And a lot of it is like facing, like acknowledging your own kind of shortcomings mm-hmm. and um, like in many ways, things that are quite profound. And when you invite other people into that, when you seek accountability and you ask for people to give you candid feedback, I mean, you better be ready. Yeah. You know what I mean? For the deconstruction right. that follows. Sounds terrifying, but it, it is. And I'm not a guy who likes that kind of stuff. Yeah. Like it's not like that's my default state. My default state is to perform and and act like everything's going great. So yeah. this could be fun. <laughs> we'll see what happens. <laughs> Excellent. Well, Christian, we will be ready for a part three here in the <laughs> in the nearish future. Um, it was great catching up with you. And uh, likewise. Thank you for being obsessed with design. Okay, kids, that's episode number 101 in the books. For all of today's show notes, head over to obsessedshow.com. And if you haven't already, while you're there, add your email address to our newsletter. I'll update you on some of my new favorite episodes and some of the cool things I find in my daily obsessions. Twitter is one of my favorite ways to receive recommendations on new guests. Tweet to at obsessedshow and I'm at Josh Miles. Let us know who you think we should interview next. Head over to iTunes to subscribe to Obsessed with Design. Also, we've added links on the show to all the places you can find the show. iTunes, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, SoundCloud, and Spotify. So no matter where you go to find your podcast, chances are you can listen to Obsessed with Design from there. Just head over to ObsessedShow.com to find the links. Obsessed with Design is a product of the Design Obsessed team at Miles Herndon a branding agency in beautiful downtown Indianapolis. Our show is always edited by Jen Eds at the Brassy Broadcast Company. Visit BrassyBroad.com to learn more. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.